If you like this podcast, you're going to really like McClanahan Academy. Head over to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll. It's free of charge. You get a free class, 10 Myths of American History. When you do enroll, I've got nearly 20 classes there available for purchase. Go to McClanahanAcademy.com. Enroll today and get a real history education. Brian McClanahan Show, episode 729. It's time to think locally and act locally. Welcome to the Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to the Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter, like my Facebook page, and subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast. Find all those social media accounts on my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. While you're there, give me that email address. I'll give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, free audiobook of the same title read by yours truly. You can support the show by going to mclanahanacademy.com. Always free to enroll. Get that free class, 10 Myths of American History, when you do enroll. And today, October 31st, is the last day to get my new class, Reading Jefferson Davis, for $60 off. All you got to do is use the coupon code DAVIS. So if you're listening to this October 31st, 2022, use that coupon code DAVIS. Get the $60 off. It's a great class. I talked about it last week, but... 25 lectures on Jefferson Davis, over 13 hours of content. And you're going to understand Jefferson Davis and his positions both before, during, and after the war. I should say all three, before, during, and after the war. You should understand all of them. And I try to explain the continuity in Jefferson Davis. He never really deviated from his primary arguments that he made in 1850 all the way into the 1880s, right? Just time, uh, just before he died, right? He was Rise and Fall of the Confederate Government, then his short history of the Confederacy, his autobiography, all of that is contained in that class, at least in one way or another. So you're going to pick that class up. You can also purchase other classes there. Of course, Black Friday is coming up, so we're going to have some coupons for that. So be on the watch out for that. If you're on the email list, which is what you want to do, give me that email address. Then you're on the email list and you'll have access to the coupons. You can also support the show by clicking on the support tab at brianmcclanahan.com. You can go to anchor.fm, become a subscriber there. You can click on the super thanks button under this video. Lots of great ways to support the show financially. But as always, rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. Let people know you like it. Leave it that five-star review. Leave a text review or comment on YouTube to help the algorithm. All of that does help. And uh, send me those show requests. You know, let me see what you want to hear. I don't always respond to them, but I do read what you send. So I like to keep the show fresh, and that's a great way to do it. Now, this week is going to be an interesting week because I'm going to be talking about the split in American conservatism. Now, the this is an interesting argument. I've said this before on this podcast. The real threat to American conservatism is not the left. And you might think, well, gosh, the left, are, they're crazy. Well, they are. But you, we know where the left is coming from. The real threat to American conservatism are those on the right who insist on advocating leftist positions as conservative. And that would be the West Coast Straussians. That would be the neoconservatives. Now, the West Coast Straussians, again, I've said before, they don't like to be called neoconservatives. But in many ways... The positions they advocate are very similar to what the neoconservatives advocate. Now, where they bristle is when you start talking about foreign policy. You know, for example, Bill Kristol is not going to be confused with a West Coast Straussian in foreign policy. But what's amazing about that is, you know, it wasn't so long ago that Bill Kristol and the West Coast Straussians essentially saw eye to eye on just about everything. 
It's only been since the Trump era and people like Michael Anton, who I will talk about this week, that you actually saw a split in many ways with the West Coast Straussians and the neoconservatives. So they've decided they're no longer neoconservatives or can't be classified as that or not be, don't want to be lumped in with that because the neocons are uh, a different breed. But they still come from the same ideological position. And that is a leftist understanding of America. The problem is that the, the West Coast Straussians don't see that this essentially destroys their entire argument because... If they say, as Jaffa does, that equality is conservative, if they say that their positions on the founding are in line with natural rights theory, which, fine, I mean, we, we can, I'll talk about this this week, and I have an essay by Paul Gottfried to, to, uh, to discuss that. But what the problem is, is they, they try to come up with an ending point for it. Well, we believe in this to this point, and then you can't go any further. Well, why do they get to decide that? The left could say, well, I mean, our... If we believe in natural rights, if we believe in these natural liberties or whatever it is, right? Well, um, natural rights more importantly. But if we believe in these, in these, uh, this proposition nation, which is what it comes down to, then why do you get to determine when that proposition nation stops when we've accomplished that that end goal, right? So the left could keep going with it, and that's what they do. And the right, the, the, the West Coast Straussians get upset with that because, no, 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 you're perverting all this. You're going too far. You're taking this too far. Well, the entire position is invalid at that point. If you build your house on, a, on sand with poor materials, it's going to collapse. And that's exactly what the West Coast Straussians have done with their version of, quote, conservatism. Now, I want to start this week, though, with an essay that appeared at im1776.com. And um, it's by Lafayette Lee. Now, Lafayette Lee is an interesting writer. He's um, written for the Abbeville Institute before. And uh, he's a Southern conservative. And I think that's an important distinction to make. He's a Southern conservative rather than a West Coast Straussian or something else. Now, you might lump him in with the paleoconservatives, but I wouldn't even go that far. Right? There are Southern conservatives, and that's exactly what Lee represents. Now, the amazing thing, or the interesting thing, I should say, about Lee is that he's one of these uh, former soldiers, you know, the, the disaffected soldiers, patriots, who signed up to go fight the war on terror, and he talks about it in this piece, and then became disillusioned. And you saw a lot of those people in 2008 with Ron Paul. A lot of uh, military uh, people in the military supported Ron Paul because they were disillusioned with the current state of the American empire, with the uh, positions of American foreign policy, and they also saw in people like Bush and establishment conservatives a real deviation from the founding. This isn't what they signed up for in many ways. And this particular piece is entitled Dark Age Patriotism. And he gets into this idea of, you know, what is patriotism? How do we define it? And then, more importantly, how does this manifest itself in American politics? Now, he also posted something on social media uh, the other day where he talked about Clyde Wilson's definition of essentially an American conservative. 
Now, I've used Calhoun, and I've said, look, I mean, Calhoun said he's a conservative because he's conservative, he's a state's rights man. And, and Clyde is not basing his definition on conservative on really anything but Calhoun in a lot of ways. I mean, it's the same thing. So he said there are essentially three components of American conservatism. There would be republicanism, there would be constitutionalism, and there would be federalism. Now, those are all isms, right? So they're ideologies, but they're not really ideologies. They are built and anchored on tradition, right? So the republicanism that he talks about is an acceptance of representative government, right? Where you do have a sovereign people. Representative government with a sovereign people. Constitutionalism, of course, believing in some fundamental structure of government, some anchor, the rule of law, and that matters. Now, the problem with constitutionalism, and as I've talked about on this podcast, is that the left realizes this, right? The left understands that, well, if we can appeal to constitutionalism, we can say what we're doing is grounded in the Constitution, then the right is incorrect. And so what they've started to do, as I discussed all last week for the most part, or at least the week before, uh, what they've started to do is say, okay, well, there is a, there's a, a progressive originalism. There's a new constitution. Noah Feldman, yeah, you conservatives are right. The, the original constitution, it would be a completely opposed to everything we're doing. But we have this new constitution created during the war and by the 14th Amendment. Now, you see, what is, there's no real difference there between that argument and what people like Michael Anton and Glenn Elmers, who I'll talk about this week, are arguing as well. It's the exact same thing. Noah Feldman is a leftist. And essentially, Michael Anton and Glenn Elmers are arguing the exact same position. Right? But see, what they would say is, no, 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 no. Lincoln actually goes back to the original founding position. Well, I mean, I don't think Feldman would argue very much differently from that. I mean, at least in ideology, Lincoln would be in line with this proposition nation. And because of that, he recreated America. Now, what Elmers will say, and I'll get into this, is that no, Lincoln didn't actually do that. But he did. He did. And the radical Republicans said it, right? I mean, this is the important thing. And the last part of this, of course, federalism, would be in a belief in a federal republic. The states have powers. The general government has limited powers. The states have virtually unlimited powers. And so, therefore, we have a federal republic. Now, where some conservatives bristle at that idea is that, well, if that's the case, then California can do things that maybe we don't like. So what? Unless you live in California. That's an important thing that you have to understand. You have to get to that point in your life, in your political beliefs. That people somewhere are going to do something that you don't like. Don't be a political Puritan. It just, you, you can't do that. You try to sweep around your own back door. You try to take care of your own state, your own local community. This is what I, I found funny uh, watching the Fetterman-Oz debate, or at least the snippets of it. When Oz made the statement about Roe v. Wade, where he said, well, I think the decision is between a woman or doctor and, and local political leaders. What he's essentially articulating there is federalism. The left jumped all up. Should, should I ask my mayor what I should do? That's not what he was saying. But of course, the left, being as stupid as they are, can't get it. Right? All he was saying, and if you look at the whole argument he made, I, I think this is a state issue. I don't support anything coming from the general government on this particular issue. It's always been a state issue, by the way, that was just usurped by the general government. And all the, all the Supreme Court did is say, okay, well, we're just going to go back to a time when the states regulated this, which was the proper position to begin with 
1973, they even knew it, right? I mean, the, the arguments in Roe v. Wade were pretty sorry. I mean, they, they just weren't very strong arguments, but the Supreme Court was being an activist court, and they wanted to legislate from the bench. Now, I want to get into this Dark Age patriotism piece. Again, it's not long, but there are some really interesting things he says about this. So he begins with a quote from Richard Weaver from the book Ideas Have Consequences. If you're not reading Weaver, you should. The quote is, Now at the height of modern progress, we behold unprecedented outbreaks of hatred and violence. We have seen whole nations desolated by war and turned into penal camps by their conquerors. We find half of mankind looking upon the other half as criminal. Everywhere are symptoms of mass psychosis. Most portentous of all, there appear diverging bases of value, so that our single planetary globe is mocked by worlds of different understanding. These signs of disintegration arouse fear, and fear leads to desperate unilateral efforts toward survival, which only forward the process. These signs of disintegration arouse fear, and fear leads to desperate unilateral efforts toward survival. What he says there basically is a top-down solution to all the problems. A rejection of federalism. A rejection of the American principle of federalism. The centralizers, whether they're on the right or the left, are problematic. Because it's going to do exactly what he says for the process of disintegration. It doesn't matter if you're pushing... And this is where Oz's answer was actually beautiful. He said, look, I don't support anything from the top down. There should be... We should have these decisions made at the state and local level. And at that point, then we can you know, come up with a, with, a, with a policy that would fit Pennsylvania, right? Or a policy that would fit Alabama or a policy that would fit California. And if you like those policies, move to those states. It can be done. So he begins, he says, Recently, by passing through a remote southern village, I find myself wondering why every street corner was adorned with a small American flag. Confused, I tried to recall which national holiday would land on the third week in September. It was only after reaching the outskirts of town, though, that I realized the display was in honor of the 21st anniversary of 9-11, Patriots Day. So he's going through a small southern village, right, he calls it, and he notices all these U.S. flags. Now, that's a relatively recent phenomenon. And I say recent, it's only post-World War II, and... I mean, really since the 1980s, you saw it more than anything else. But it ramped up in the post-World War II era, the 1950s, you started seeing more of it. And I remember I was talking with a colleague, and he was alive at the time of World War II. And he says he thought it was odd that people started putting up U.S. flags everywhere. That just didn't happen. He was from South Carolina. He said people just didn't do this stuff. But it was only World War II that drove that because you had this sense of nationalism coming out of World War II. He says, I doubt that I was the only American to be caught unaware. Each September 11th uh, approaches more quietly than the last, and every year we are left wondering whether our wounds have finally healed or, or have we just learned to ignore them. To recall that tragedy is to conjure a world that feels entirely alien now. The flag-waving of yesteryear elicits embarrassment and the righteous anger that's Surge in the early days of the global war on terror has all but evaporated. Twenty years, trillions of dollars, and the best blood of a generation yielded none of the fruits promised by that alien world. Instead, the dangers lurking beyond our borders remain, and enemies both seen and unseen continue to plot our destruction. If our intentions were ever noble, surely they were born out of a desire to protect the near and dear. 
But soon defending ourselves became a project to transform the world, and along the way we became disfigured ourselves. Now we struggle to articulate what it was that we were defending in the first place. Was it freedom, democracy, the homeland? So again, I mentioned he's a soldier. He's a disillusioned soldier. He signed up to go fight the global war on terror. And we are left wondering what happened. If, we, if it's these things, democracy, what is that? You hear the left talk about it all the time. We have to protect our democracy. Our democracy is in peril. What does this actually mean? It's a strange argument in many ways. It's an abstraction. And as an abstraction, it means nothing. He says, I found myself in a similar quandary as a young soldier laboring on the edges of the American Imperium. My reasons for enlisting in the army during the global war on terror were many. I longed for adventure and I wanted to prove myself as a man. I also come from a long military tradition reaching back to the 17th century. And the sacrifices of my forebears, no matter how distant, have always inspired thoughts and actions. But above all, I believe my nation had been attacked and I felt a responsibility to defend my family, friends, neighbors, and homeland from enemies. However misguided my perception of the world was at the time, that sense of obligation to near and dear was paramount. Looking back, it was always the essence of my patriotism. Now, the question is, what is patriotism, right? So he's getting to that point. What is patriotism? Is it, is it allegiance to an abstraction, to an idea, to the proposition nation, to the nation, no matter what? My country, right or wrong, but always my country? And of course, you had members of the founding generation that would say that. Or is patriotism something else? Is patriotism simply a love of people in place? Protecting those things that you hold the most dear, which would be your immediate family, your community, your state. Is that what patriotism is? Or is patriotism waving the flag for an abstraction, democracy, freedom, liberty? We can always defend those things through patriotism, protecting the near and dear, your place, your home. That's freedom to you. That's liberty to you. And in your local community, you certainly have a voice. That's democracy to you. But what about in the larger picture? Do we really have democracy at the federal level? Do we really have representative government there? Or is it some empire that we're simply defending because it has a red, white, and blue flag? Because that's our team, no matter what it does. And I think this is, again, where a lot of soldiers become disillusioned. They look at it and say, this is not, it's not what I signed up for. I didn't sign up for some empire. But that's exactly what they eventually get themselves into. He says, in troubled times like these, it should come as no surprise that there is little appetite for patriotism, exiled to the realm of ideas where custom, culture, history, and tradition are dissected and dissolved. America is increasingly hard to love. Exiled to the realm of ideas, democracy, equality, civil rights, civil liberties, freedom. What does, that any, what does that even mean? Those terms don't mean anything. They've become so watered down and so politically charged that they really mean nothing anymore. He says, we no longer know how to define our homeland, much less our relation to it. In an atmosphere like this, can we really fault ourselves for losing faith when America repeatedly fails to embody its Apollonian image or represents the worst impulses of empire? What patriotism is a bumper sticker... I'm sorry, when patriotism is a bumper sticker, a slogan, a shakedown, or merely an ascent to nebulous ideas, should we mourn its loss? Is there still a place for it? When patriotism is a bumper sticker, a slogan, a shakedown, 
He doesn't say it, but an abstraction. Nebulous ideas, it's an abstraction. You know, it's uh, proud to be an American, right? What does that even mean? What is an American anyways? Is it easy to define? We know that John Taylor of Caroline said America for Americans is like utopia for utopians. There is no unified American people. But if you want to rally around an abstraction, well, that's something interesting. In fact, back in the 19th century, there was a Pole. I'm sorry, he was a Hungarian. His name was Kasuth. Kasuth came to the United States, gave a speech, where he talks about America essentially as an abstraction. And anybody could fit in. Anybody could come in, anybody could fit in. They didn't recognize race or anything else. It was simply an abstraction, a belief in economy and this nebulous thing, as he says, an idea. Now, is that what the Straussians are saying? Is that it? And I think in some ways they are, right? Now, Kasuth was a leftist, <laughs> This is it. This is my point. And all these, all these Straussians, what they are doing is essentially echoing 19th century leftism, 19th century liberalism, and calling it conservative. The repackaging is that. So they're not really conserving anything but leftism. They're not really concerning conserving anything that was considered conservative before the 19th century. They just don't do it. So Lee says, born under a blue sky in November on a lonely Pennsylvania green, America, the idea, owes its existence to the genius of an Illinois rail splitter. Just months after the greatest bloodletting in American history, Abraham Lincoln delivered a 272-word address at the dedication of a newly established National Cemetery at Gettysburg. Unlike popular speeches of the period, these remarks at Gettysburg were short and brief, with historical analogy. But Lincoln's words were poetic and brimming with powerful religious overtones. Through this Gnostic injunction, the rail splitter was able to galvanize his cause, quietly bury the old Republic of Washington, Adams, and Jefferson, and inaugurate the new birth of a nation. Much of our modern understanding of patriotism, national identity, and our country's origins can be traced to this mythic juncture. He's exactly right about this. That was a turning point. Noah Feldman says as much. Lincoln destroyed the Constitution and created a new one. This is what people have said about Lincoln for years, but no, no, no. That's not what the, the, the Jaffites, the Straussians, say about this. Lincoln was the continuity. Lincoln held the union together. He held the founding together. Now, Lincoln wasn't the first to do this. There were others, right? There were members of the Republican Party that would do the exact same thing. I've talked about it in my class, Radical Republicans. They were already linking the Declaration, or using the Declaration, as a hammer for their political ideology. Lincoln, because he was president, was just the most conspicuous to do it. But you had many of them that did it. Lee says, Lincoln's selective reading of the Declaration of Independence is a cornerstone of our political religion today. And his portrayal of the most devastating war in American history as a purification ritual is widely accepted in North and South alike. Abraham Lincoln's radical departure from the historical and legalistic confines of the nation's first founding is his most lasting achievement. This is where all the Straussians just went into a fit of rage. Because he's bashing Lincoln here, which is important, or at least he's recognizing Lincoln as a turning point. Well, they wouldn't see it that way. And as we're going to see with a piece from Glenn, El Glenn Elmer's in response to this, this is exactly the point he makes. But Lee is correct. 
Whereas the Declaration of Independence is bound in a certain place in time and history with a specific people striving to recover their political inheritance as Englishmen, the Gettysburg Address recognizes no such boundaries. Well, this is where Anton would say, this is historicist. This is historicist. You can't say these things. The Declaration is timeless. Right? It's timeless. What Lee is saying, not that, that, that took place at a certain time and place. Now, in their rights of Englishmen, this is where Elmer's, oh, you can't, that, that's just silly. You can't, you can't talk about this. They had, they had abandoned that position by 1775 and 1776. Really? I'll talk about that tomorrow. Instead, that the nation Lincoln speaks into being is one that defers to the primacy of truths far beyond the limitations of law, history, and human nature. Uprooted from its ancient constraints, the American nation ceases to be a polity and is rendered as an aspirational project, forever, forever condemned to a process of becoming. This is the America of the second founding, America as an idea. And though the disinterested patriot might, find, might not fully recognize his conversion and the gulf that separates him from his so-called founding fathers. He'll inevitably articulate his own patriotism as the pursuit of, of amorphous ideals with freedom and equality foremost among them. Again, amorphous ideals. Now, this is a great essay. I mean, um, I, I know uh, Lafayette Lee, and um, he is, um, he's spot on with this, right? I mean, this is, this is a very good essay and a nice articulation of things. Of course, I've talked about on this podcast many, many times. Uh, and so that's why I wanted to cover this, because he's exactly right. There's a second American founding. I mean, the Beard said this, right? There was a second American revolution. Essentially, what, what Lee is recognizing here is the same thing that the left is saying. Well, there was an American revolution. See, the problem with, the, with these Straussians is they haven't figured this out yet. They haven't figured out that Lincoln really is the pivot point, and Lincoln is the problem, because they love Lincoln, and they think Lincoln is the embodiment of the founding when he was a rejection of the entire thing. And there were some progressive historians who actually would argue the same exact position. right? I mean, if you look at um, Herbert Storing and his anti-federalist papers, the introduction to that, right? he says it. Lincoln was, uh, the, Lincoln was the same as Jefferson. Lincoln was the natural anti-federalist. Now, he was the anti-federalist federalist, I guess is what you would say, but Lincoln embodied that original spirit of the founding. He's a progressive. Storing was a progressive. So again, the Straussians are actually progressives. Even though they bash the progressives, it's what they are. But the problem is that in the tyranny of abstract principles, values, and ideas, nothing is too sacred to sacrifice on the altar of disembodied ideals. For this reason, America as an idea offers little protection against mobs, ideologues, and fanatics. Instead, the corrosive project moves at, breakneck, at a breakneck pace, and patriotism becomes incoherent. Mass democracy leaves our national symbols uh, starch of meaning, and the star-spangled rhetoric of politicians engenders disgust rather than devotion. For decades, we have witnessed the United States government varnish its every blunder, scandal, and defeat with a patriotic gloss, all while the blame, all while the blaming the public's treachery for its own corruption and deceit. And an empire of elite, self-interested, burnished with decidedly American universalism, spans the globe, even as the country of its birth remains frail and shrinking. At some point, every veteran of the global war on terror has peeked behind the curtain to witness the American empire's unsightly entrails. For many, there comes a bitter realization that simple loyalty to one's people and place does not steer America's war machine, but rather provides an endless supply of fuel ripe for abuse. Now, again, what I find amazing about this, this is a man 
who went out and signed up and fought for the empire, not really realizing he was doing it, but that's what he was doing. He says, look, everyone peers behind. They see it. He's in contact with people who are veterans all the time. And then you have Glenn Elmers, who never did any of that, telling him that he's wrong. No, no. I'm, I'm happy to fight with Lafayette Lee against these things. But you need to understand what America is. It's a type of moral, self-righteous, Yankee hectoring that nobody wants to hear. It's political puritanism on the right. It's New England nonsense. Essentially, the Elmer's piece is a hectoring piece to Lafayette Lee. And it comes off as that. And frankly, it makes Len Elmer's look small. To find yourself in the belly of that beast and to behold the corruption and deceit firsthand is to wrestle with a set of existential questions that the American public is now just now beginning to grasp. And yet, even after peering into Leviathan's maw, a dedicated number of American warfighters stayed in the fight. Some like Joe Kent, serving more than 10 combat deployments. This dedication is commonly mistaken for concurrence with U.S. foreign policy or allegiance to the federal bureaucracy. But if my own experience is any guide, the devotion practiced by everyday men and women throughout our most recent conflicts was most firmly rooted in their loyalty to one another, to the near and dear. When ideas failed, there was still a brother to your left and right. Again, it's protecting people in place, not to some abstraction. That's what politicians say it's all about. That's what Glenn Elmer says it's all about. That's what Michael Anton says it's all about. They're no better than George W. Bush. Americans have already had their funeral for the, of the country and are now busy dividing spoils or building castles in the air. Those who lack the means or wits to loot tend to anticipate some kind of collapse or moral victory on the horizon. A chance to wipe the slate clean and build something better from scratch. And again, he's talking about the Straussians there because they talk about the, the America's inevitable. It's going to fail. So what are we going to do? What are we going to base this new America on? I don't think it's going to fail. Not now. I mean, it's going to, everything falls, right? And the fall might be gradual or it could be sudden. I mean, we don't know. History can't be a guide for anything in terms of predictive. You can say, well, we know these things can happen because of X, Y, and Z, but we don't know exactly how it's going to happen. So uh, we could return to federalism, and things could work out just fine, right? We we limit the power of the center. We, we, we pull that back, and America returns to what it was. Though the story's hero inevitably varies, it is a common daydream. But retreating into the abstract is an age-old temptation that rarely bears fruit. In these airy realms, the limitations of the physical world are overcome through passion. Relationships, habits, customs, and whole societies are redesigned or invented out of whole cloth, and human nature itself, a perennial thorn to dreamers everywhere, is defeated and redeemed through the power of ideas. Perhaps this is the second founding's greatest ob obstacle. Even our purported solutions usher us back to the realm of ideology and only further the process. Those who cannot be consoled through corruption or apocalyptic visions, what can be done? To understand true patriotism, we need to recover our country from the realm of ideas and conceive of our homeland much as our fathers of the first founding did. So he's saying, what can be done? How can we get rid of all this abstraction? How can we go back to root in something? So he says, go back to what they did. For the revolutionary generation, patriotism was a devotion and a responsibility to one's people in place. He's 100% right about that. Of course, Glenn Elmers is going to say he's not, but he is. They're fighting. Look, you go to South Carolina. 
Francis Marion was fighting for South Carolina. He was fighting for the place around him. He wasn't fighting for any abstraction. Not at all. And just because George Washington read the Declaration of Independence to his men doesn't mean there's an abstraction. I'll get into that tomorrow. Honoring these attachments required a strong sense of obligation and personal virtue, and it was expected of every man, no matter how lowly his station. Patriotism for the American colonists was to prioritize the particular over the universal, the real over the abstract, and to recognize one's commitment to the living, the unborn, the long dead. These Americans understood themselves to be the beneficiaries of a political inheritance that had accumulated over centuries. They had a keen awareness of their collective past, the origins of their rights as Englishmen, and they commonly traced their habits, customs, and traditions back centuries to their Anglo-Saxon forebearers, who they believed to be a free people and the original authors of English liberty. Jealously guarding that liberty was considered a patriotic duty, and it bordered on obsession. To the American colonists, his rights and liberty were not the product of some abstract or an abstruse theory or some noxic forest. They were his birthright, and as such, they could be seized by the grasping and tenacious hand of tyrannical power. Again, he's exactly right about this. Now, I'll talk about how Elmer's responds to this tomorrow, but his response is weak. It's very weak. And we can have example after example of, of people saying these things. This patriotic resistance to any and all encroachments on the ancient rights of Englishmen animated the loyal opposition of Lord Bolingbroke's country party in England and later the restorative revolution in colonial America. The restorative revolution. The English Bill of Rights was hearkening back to the rights of Englishmen that had been established 400 years before that. Right? You could even say 600 years before that. It became the lifeblood of all, for all revolutionary, uh, revolutionary ferment in the colonies and forged an unbreakable bond between the disinterested commoners and the educated aristocratic exponents of American independence, all firmly rooted in the near and dear. When Jefferson approved of a little rebellion now and then, he was not endorsing the endless pursuit of ethereal goals and ideas. He was speaking with a continuum of historical rights and liberties dutifully, dutifully tended, carefully guarded, and from time to time restored through vigorous action. This was the simple yet sacred responsibility of the patriot. So, again, the patriot is holding on to the traditions, to the birthright, to the customs, all of these things. That's what he is adhering to, and that's what uh, the founding is all about, not some idea or some proposition nation. Lincoln revolutionized the revolution. I believe we can and should recover that patriotism, a simple obligation to those things that are embodied, not to lofty ideals and aspirational projects. You cannot transcend your own national history any more than you can create heaven on earth, and attempting to do so will keep us all trapped inside the tyranny of ideas. We Americans are exhausted from living in a state of perpetual revolution, and we bristle more and more when ideology dictates our most basic needs and desires. But these might just be the final moments of, the, of America, the idea, Patriotism, the way it was originally intended, might be the only effective tool we have against this ideological regime. In other words, what Lafayette Lee is saying here, what we need to do is think locally and act locally. Right? That's the whole point of this piece. Great minds think alike. But that's the whole point. Think locally and act locally. Defend people, place, the people next to you, your community. Those things are not abstractions. Those are real, tangible things. And that's exactly what the founding generation was defending, too. And most of them could care less about abstractions. 
the common soldier who went out and fought for independence could care less about abstractions. In New England, it was about how much money they can get paid, right? So that was important. Okay, so this is setting up what I'm going to do for the rest of the week. I have Glenn Elmer's response to this tomorrow, and then I'm going to talk about Michael Anton and Paul Gottfried uh, later on in the week. So I'll see you tomorrow on The Brian McClanahan Show. See you then. <laughs> <laughs>